I think tonight's topic is one that we've revisited in a number of different angles, and I think it's increasingly important in the world where it's hard to even know the filter that we are seeing the world through increasingly. And I know actually just looking through the tonight's list of people that, that came that many of you are working on the algorithms that we're talking about. Um, so I'm, I'm especially interested to hear um, your responses and questions um, to tonight's talk. And with that, um, I'm gonna hand you off to probably a presenter who's presented to more uh, numbers of humans than anybody else. He's, probably, he's uh, I, I think, working in newsrooms and in front of uh, all kinds of different audiences and talking to all kinds of technologists, I think in a much broader spectrum than most of our speakers ever get a chance to do. So um, welcome, Jacob Ward. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Xander. I really appreciate it. Um, before I start, I do want to sort of shout out uh, CASBIS, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. They right now are accepting applications for fellowships. Um, and uh, all manner of people wind up uh, getting to be there, including even lowly journalists like myself. Uh, and so I really recommend it. If you have the opportunity, if you are in any way connected to academia in any sense and could use a year, it's an incredible experience. And so I highly recommend it. Um, I, uh, I, I work in news, I'm an NBC News correspondent, and um, the sort of day-to-day -day of the grind of that uh, means that my attention span is like this a lot of the time, and so it's a wonderful opportunity to be here tonight with all of you in such a thoughtful environment that is devoted to thinking of things in so much longer and more civilized time frames than I typically get to in my workday. And so it's wonderful to be able to sort of step back from all of that and talk about this stuff with you. So um, I'm gonna start this uh, with something that, that I uh, have thought about a lot uh, sort of in my kind of earlier life as a publisher of, uh, sorry, as a, as a magazine editor at Pop Popular Science Magazine. When we were at Popular Science, we, we would go uh, deep on certain subjects that were sort of, they became almost sort of like intellectual kind of comfort food. And one of the big ones for us was interplanetary transit, getting from here to another planet. And I know that um, uh, a lot of you probably have thought about this as well, but um, in this case, we thought a lot about Mars, right? Getting to Mars. Okay, let's talk about, you know, uh, how would we get there? How could you possibly get across those incredible distances? Because, you know, the, the transit takes 300 days at least, depending on the, the relationship of the two bodies to one another, you know, where they're at in their orbits. And so how could you, across that incredible distance and incredible time, have a human crew get all the way to the red planet and survive, right? How would they survive the rigors of deep space, the radiation? Uh, could they communicate back, you know? Um, and could they, you know, even get along during that period of time? And there have, in fact, been these very interesting uh, uh, experiments in which first in Russia and recently, more recently in Hawaii, they actually made cosmonauts and astronauts sit in the frickin' thing 
for the amount of time that you would have them actually transfer from our planet to Mars and just see if they don't drive each other crazy. And sure enough, every time they would drive each other fucking crazy, <laughs> right? Uh, in, the, in the Russian one, it's actually not very well reported that they, that they actually had a case of sexual harassment, maybe assault, somebody got punched in the nose, like, you know, it went wrong. And so the idea that we could even get 300 days through space to another planet where almost certainly the first crew will die, right, they're never coming back, is one of these things that just boggles the mind. Well, you then think about exoplanets. Okay, let's think about how far away the nearest survivable planet is, really a survivable one, not like Mars where you could stand there and hold your breath and make it for, you know, a couple minutes, but one where you could, in theory, stand and breathe some sort of atmosphere, you know, it might work out, right? So for people who don't know, exoplanets is this notion that, that uh, people have found mostly through something called the Kepler mission. There was, it's data coming back where, where a distant star has some sort of intervening object that we can just barely detect because the light from that distant star gets bent around it. And by doing that bending, you can tell the size, the proportion, the distance from the star that that planet is. And therefore we go, oh, it might be in the same sort of proportion as Earth, and thus it might be a breathable atmosphere. Anyway, all of it is conjecture, but it does suggest to people that there are some places that we might be able to live elsewhere in our galaxy. So this is the closest exoplanet to Earth, Proxima Centauri b. And it's only 4.2 light years away. When they discovered this, it was this just like, you know, people were just like, wow, we are going to this planet. We're gonna swim in its oceans, we're playing volleyball on the beaches, let's go. But then, because I work at popular science, we ruin these sorts of ideas very quickly by doing the math on what it would take to get there. So it turns out that at the top speed of a rocket that we can currently make, which is about 20,000 miles an hour, it would take 137,000 years to get to Proxima Centauri b, the closest detected livable planet in our galaxy. So that is about 2,000 human generations to get there. And that has spawned a tiny little group at NASA that thinks about something called the generation ship. And it would in fact be a vessel that you would have to get on board. You somehow have enough people and enough genetic diversity in that first group of people to get on board that they mate they have a whole other generation, right? And 1,999 generations later, when we all have eyes in the center of our foreheads and our ears are down here, or God knows what's happened to you genetically, right? But terrible things have happened over the intervening time for you to all be living in the same frickin' tin can for 2,000 generations, 137,000 years. To put that in context, human beings walked off of Africa like for the first time we went beyond just full on survival mode and into thinking like, what else is there in the world? And walked off of Africa only 140,000 years ago. You know, everyone here is part of a, of, a, of a species that really has only been upright and thinking for about 140,000 years. So you think about all of that being contained in this one thing. And I'll just tell you right now, the fundamental conclusion here is we are not going to another planet. <laughs> that's not happening. There's no way that's gonna happen. Because 137,000 years, 2,000 years, you know, that's a, long, that's a long time. And instead, we need to start thinking about this ship, our ship that we are on right now. This is it. This is the only one we get, right? We're on the ship, and we need to start thinking 
in terms of generations the way this little, time, this little group of NASA people is thinking about it. And one of the things that I think is so sort of fundamental that we need to start thinking about is it's a really fragile little arrangement, you know? There's a lot of sexual harassment and sexual assault going on in this ship. You know, there's a lot of stuff going badly. And we need to be careful of what we set loose on the decks of this ship. And I find that one of the ones that's bothering me the most, you know, I think is the most worrisome, is artificial intelligence. And it is the ways in which we are going to set it loose on the crew in a way that I think is gonna have terrible consequences if we're not careful in, not, maybe not this generation, maybe not the next, but a couple generations down, some bad stuff could happen. And that's what I wanna talk about here tonight. So we are building guidance systems that shape our choices. I think, fundamentally. And we're doing it without any realization of not only how effective they're going to be on us, but also the singular human characteristics that make us both vulnerable to them and totally unconscious that they're working on us. And for me, I think this is a really important thing for us to start thinking about. So before I get into that, let's talk a little bit about what the fuck is machine learning? Because it's something that I think a lot of people don't really understand. I'm sure in this crew, almost all of you understand it in some way, but you have to take the, you know, the, the remarks that I've prepared here tonight, so I'm just gonna go ahead and walk through this. The way I have been explaining it to people, and I'll be curious tonight to have anybody here sort of help me refine this, because I'm trying to get better at it, is you have a big amount of messy data. You don't know what to do with it, you don't want to pay people to go through it, you don't want to have to sit yourself and go through it. So instead, you find comparable data, training data, that in some way, has either direct application to the data you're looking at, it's like a tiny subset of it, or it's close enough of a parallel that it might be useful in some way. You use that to then create basically examples of right and wrong answers that you can give to an algorithm, and then using those right and wrong examples instead of just straight coding instructions, you can then turn that algorithm loose to apply the rules it has learned on the messy data that you started with. So here's an example of how that might work. Let's say you want to ask an algorithm, okay algorithm, tell me which is which. Which is a cow and which is a dog. Tell me the difference between these two things and a bunch of photographs I'm about to give you. Or, you know, in some other piece of, you know, some data that's full of cows and dogs. Tell me the difference between these two things. If you give the system enough cows and tell it, this is, these are correct pictures of cows, and you give it enough pictures of dogs and say these are actually dogs, you can in fact teach it enough examples that it can draw the distinction between the two. The AI uses patterns to label the data. That's really all it comes down to. So when you think about it in terms of just a system that just is trying to draw a distinction between categories, you really begin to understand that it doesn't actually know anything beyond the basic, barest minimum it needs to distinguish between those two things. So let's say that in a bunch of data you've got on cows and dogs, there are two variables you can look at. There's size and there's slobber, right? <laughs> it picks those out, says, oh, here's, here's one that's really consistent in the examples you've given me. And out of that, it can begin charting. Oh, the dogs fall into the slobber category and they're a little smaller in size. Here's the cows, they're bigger. They slobber some, but not too much. And out of that, you can draw this line that distinguishes between the two. This one is dogs, sorry, this one is cows. This side, dogs, you're just teaching it how to distinguish between the two. People think that they're, I, I think sort of the misperception among the, the 
you know, many, many people that I talk to tends to be that there's something more sophisticated going on than this. But really, it is just describing the difference. Machine learning really just uses the patterns to just draw that distinguishing line. That's really all it comes down to. So I think that for me, that what's so important to understand is that it doesn't really know anything about dogs or cows. It just knows the simplest possible way to tell the difference based on the data you've given it. So now, the problem that I'm trying to identify here is that human beings are all about patterns. That's all we do is fall into patterns. You point a camera at drunk people at a hockey game, they're always gonna do this. Every time, right? You put the words kiss cam underneath, they're gonna kiss each other. We are incredibly predictable as a species. It's just what we do. And so, it's my nightmare, by the way, that someday I'm gonna be in, this, in a talk like this, and those people are gonna somehow be in the audience, because I have no idea who they are, you know, but like, they totally look like my contemporaries, and they could be out there somewhere. So anyway, someday that'll happen. So the question that I sort of am, am playing with is, if you look across all the patterns of human behavior, is there any category of human behavior that you couldn't pick patterns out of? Or is all of it readable by an algorithm? Is any behavior random, right? Or is every piece of behavior somehow readable by an algorithm in the same way that it can distinguish between dogs and cows? So here's an example of one that seems very random, but it turns out an algorithm can pick patterns of like that. And it is divorce. So half of US couples break up, divorce between 40 to 50%, depending on who, on, on the studies you're looking at. And it turns out that there are in fact very consistent reasons that are cited for why they split up. The stressors in the relationship are super consistent, at least in this culture. Money, time, children are the top three factors typically cited. And as a result, there is a whole industry of mediation apps that are growing up and one of them that I've been dealing with a lot, we're about to do a story on it for NBC, is a company called Co-Parenter that is fascinating. What they've basically done is discovered that because the sort of the, the catalysts for fights um, tend to come through on the text messages exchanged between a, a newly divorced couple as they're trying to negotiate over the co-parenting of a kid, they've actually found that there are 700 to 900 words and phrases that indicate trouble is coming. And so, when couples are ordered by a judge to use the app in their communications with one another, as over 100 family courts around the country have begun to do, then you write to your wife, you know, you start to say to your ex-wife, I'll never give you another dying, you lying, but you know, whatever. And it pops up, literally a little warning pops up and says, are you sure you want to send this text message? Because based on what we see here, you're probably going to wind up back in court. Are you sure, right? So when we talk to the, um, and, and not only, sorry, not only do, does it spot the disagreements as they're coming up, it also even spots the opportunities for an agreement. So when you start to say, well, why don't you pick him up every Friday or whatever the thing is, it'll say, it looks like you're about to come up with a scheduling agreement. Why don't we give you this draft template where you guys can agree to this, sign it maybe if you'd like to. It'll propose solutions because again, we're not random. We're totally full of patterns. Human beings, or at least Americans, fight in this way, in this super consistent way that an algorithm can spot just as easily as it can tell the difference between size and slobber. So, 
For me, I think it's fascinating because it has tremendous short-term benefit, right? Supposedly, according to the company, but, it, but this is backed up by, court, by the courts, 85% of couples who use this settle their differences out of court and never return to a judge again. That's it. They're, they're totally helped by it. And the people that we've interviewed who've used it say it's fabulous. We don't get into the same fights we do. Our communications are incredibly brief and to the point. We're really getting along in a way we never could before. Great. My problem is, will the kid who's never seen his parents settle it without a robot mediator, as a result, be consigned to a lifetime of always requiring that coach to be in the middle of that conversation, right? You can imagine the sitcom version of this, right, where a suburban family, right, is being coached all through their day about how to be with one another, right, and then it breaks down and everything goes wrong. I have a whole, like, whole treatment for a sitcom written, written about this. Um, you know, generationally for me, what will it be like when everyone has grown up on a guided solution like this and doesn't know how to wing it without it down the line? So before we go any further on this, I want to talk a little bit about this question of, again, you know, these are not as sophisticated a set of algorithms as we think they are, or at least as other people outside this room perhaps think they are. And so I think the fundamental question is, is does the technology actually know us or instead are we programmed, hardwired somehow to believe that it does more than it does and as businesses grow around them, are we going to be further and further incentivized to promote and believe the idea that these things are really, really good at everything? So for me, the good cautionary tale that I think everybody is sort of should know about um, is Joseph Weizenbaum. He was an early... Uh, uh, creator of what was at the time essentially the first chatbot. He built a, a system, a sort of a script, a decision tree script that would kick back pre-scripted answers depending on what you had written, literally into a teletype system. And he was trying to figure out what to do with it and how to sort of use it in an experimental way. And so what he decided to do was he would dress it up as what was cool at the time, which was a Rogerian therapist. Uh, and it was the kind of therapy that was in fashion at the time of, of where they reflect your answers back at you. And so he, he made it such that he could sit his secretary in front of it in his first experiment and have her type in certain inputs. He'd say, talk to it the way you would to a therapist. And she goes, okay, well, my boyfriend's driving me crazy. And the computer says, why is your boyfriend driving you crazy? Well, you know how men are. Well, how are men? Tell me that. You know, he, you, in fact, you remind me of my boyfriend a bit. Why do you think I remind you of your boyfriend, right? It's just reflecting it back. Within five minutes, she had turned around to him and said, I need you to leave the room. I can't have you here. This is far too sensitive a conversation. Uh, this, is a, this is private. Within two years, the American Psychological Association had predicted the end of human therapy and the rise of robot therapists. Carl Sagan stood up on television and said, that's it, robot therapists are happening. It's all coming, this is happening. Weizenbaum quit the field. His response to this, and this is amazing, because I tell, I tell room full of, of young entrepreneurs about this, and they go, what do you mean he quit the field? Why did he do that? He had a great product going. He was ready to rock, you know, which I always go, oh, you're all, we're all in such trouble that you have that reaction, right? <laughs> but basically, he said, Human beings should not have this kind of technology. We should not be using it to trick one another like this. We are too gullible, we are too inherently vulnerable to believing that this stuff can do more than it can. 
And so he, he died in Germany as an environmental activist, spent the rest of his life uh, agitating for, for better treatment of the planet. Um, but that has not stopped the progress of people who do want to use our susceptibility for using this stuff to do all kinds of crazy shit. Pardon my French. And we're not just using it to decipher our tastes, right? We're not using it to just do sort of recommendation engines, you know, on, on Spotify. We're using it to do all kinds of stuff. And I know you probably can't read most of this and it's sort of intended just to try and hit you over the head with the idea that billions of dollars are being spent in government and in private industry to turn AI to all sorts of crazy uses. Um, we just interviewed, uh, uh, well, I, don't, I, I can't talk about that, but we talked to, we've talked to, a, talked to a large number of people doing really creepy stuff with AI. Um, in all areas of life, not just the fun stuff, but you know, it is fundamentally who gets a job, who gets a loan, who goes to jail. That stuff is starting to get sorted out by the same algorithms that just draws lines between categories. So what's wrong with that? Well, I get it. It's faster. It's more efficient. It also, I think, takes away a certain amount of sort of human horror when it comes to having to make difficult choices. Is this guy getting this job? Is this, is this guy getting this loan? Uh, she's not getting a loan. Well, you know, computer said so, no big deal. And I, I'm not sort of making this up. This is happening now. So you guys probably remember back in 2017 on United Flight 3411, a group of passengers, the whole plane was asked, who here can get off the flight? We're oversold, we're overbooked. Somebody's got to get off this flight. And no one volunteered because they didn't offer enough money. They said it was like 400 bucks or something to get off of the last flight out that night. Nobody volunteered. And so they said, okay, well, if no one will volunteer, we're going to choose people at random. And what they didn't tell people is that a computer chose the names at random. When they came back, having said so, three people who were chosen said, okay, we were chosen at random, we're out, no problem. And they got up and they got off. But a guy named David Dow, pulmonologist, said, I can't. I can't get off the flight. You've chosen me. I get it. But I have rounds in the morning. I have, you know, patients with heart failure I got to see in the morning. There is no way I'm getting off this flight. And in fact, he was invoking what he didn't know at the time was a legal right on his part. You're not allowed to pull a, a, a physician on call off a flight. But the gate agent and the people in charge of that flight basically abandoned all their human faculties and said, computer chose this guy, get him off the flight. They got security guards in to get him off the flight. And they fucked him up, right? They pulled him off the flight such that they, they uh, broke uh, uh, bones in his body. He was hospitalized afterwards, right? And what people don't know is the guards, the security personnel who were called in to do that, are now actually suing United and the FAA. And it's funny, when you look at coverage of that, in, uh, in, in mainstream uh, media, uh, they, they talk a little, God, I can't believe I use that term in, in public. Never mind that. Can I somehow, I wish I could erase that, mainstream media, forget it. The coverage of that at the time was very mocking of these security guards, saying, oh, they, you know, they're suing, of course they're suing, you know, America, isn't it screwed up? Well, their argument was in fact we were instructed to do a thing that we were not trained to make decisions about, right? And in, in essence, what they were sort of saying was, no one there told us 
to make any other decision. We were told the computer has chosen this guy, and it had, because of whatever, his frequent flyer status, how recently he had bought the ticket, who knows what the various variables were that caused the computer to chose these four names. But for whatever reason, it turned off everyone's humanity and turned up the just certainty of the situation such that they do something terrible to a guy in front of all these other passengers, you know, something that you would never do now. Now, in retrospect, it looks ridiculous, and now United's policy is to blow, you know, throw all kinds of money at you. In fact, my wife and I flew for free uh, to, uh, on a vacation a couple weeks later because the second that they said, we're gonna need volunteers to get off a flight, this was totally unrelated, I was like this, because I knew they were gonna throw as much money as they needed at us, and sure enough, you know, we got like thousands of dollars right away because they knew you don't do this anymore. In fact, what you should do is give more offer more money, and then people will volunteer and walk away, and you don't get into this kind of trouble. So, the abandoning of our, you know, human, choices is something that I'm really worried about here. And it's true, not just in the sort of hard and fast, you know, who goes and who stays stuff. It's, it's, it's making its way into all kinds of stuff that we thought previously, or I would have thought previously, was irreplaceably human domains. So in areas like art and music and writing, you're seeing AI sort of way, you know, worm its way in there. So with art, uh, we went and talked to, to people um, uh, working on the problem of um, in antiquity, you have, let's say, Roman vases, which are very, very hard to come by now because they break, obviously. If you feed enough of what we know was made in, the, in, in ancient times into an algorithm, it turns out that it can also then kick out for you examples that should exist because they would connect these two examples you know about, but that no one has seen. And art historians are, in fact, beginning to use that missing link that is totally digital and totally just projected by the algorithm to predict you know, where, things have, where things probably went in order to then get to this you know, period in, uh, you know, in Greece or in you know, Etruscan pottery or whatever it is. It turns out that, that our taste in art and the way that we make art is actually pretty legible to a system like that. And in fact, it's so legible now that we went and covered a guy in London who sold a piece of AI art at Sotheby's for $50,000 that basically he fed his favorite 10,000 oil paintings from the 14th to 11th century into, and it kicked back this greatest hits piece of art that just generates what it knows he will find pleasing based on the examples that he's fed it. And again, it sold for $50,000. There was a whole article in the MIT Tech Review by a philosopher saying that a, you know, a computer can never make real art. And I wanted to ask that guy, well, somebody bought it for $50,000, so what do you care whether it's real art? Somebody totally bought it and believes it enough to think that they should buy the thing. So, I don't know, for me, it, what's the point of that debate? In music, this is one that I thought, well, there's no way it can get involved there. Well, yeah, sure it can. It turns out there's only seven variables to music. It turns out to be the easiest of the arts to, to feed in. And in, fa in fact, Huawei used the technology on just its phone, its little mate phone, to finish Franz Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. Again, using that idea where the missing pieces, if you see enough of the rest of the, of the puzzle, the missing pieces would look like this, right? And the LA Orchestra uh, uh, played it there. And with writing, this one really blew my mind. So um, there's a, a woman named Anna Todd who was a, a living a very hard life as, the, as an army wife on a base 
with a, a disabled son, I mean, really not having a good time. And she would sort of escape from her life by standing in the checkout line and be writing into her phone on a platform called Wattpad the romance novels she wishes were out there. Pretty soon she had this crazy following, this little really loyal following on Wattpad. And it turns out what Wattpad does is it takes not just the patterns that it can detect in your writing and compares it to other successful uh, things like Twilight or whatever else, it also then can read the way your audience is reacting and the sort of the, the pace and, and path of that reaction to then project what's gonna be a winner. And now, Anatot is a, is a multi-millionaire who has a, a whole series called After. You never forget your first one, or something about you never, after your first one. Anyway, she's, she's a fabulous person to talk to. Um, she says, I don't really know how this happened, but it's great, and I'm really enjoying it. And she now has, there's a whole Netflix series that's coming out with her. But again, this is a system in which algorithms are spotting the patterns of what she's written, comparing it to successful stuff, and greenlighting scripts and novels based on that. And I'll tell you right now, as someone who works in media, the risk aversion of media is very strong. And so, if you've got something where the, where the AI says, this script will work, you know, they're gonna start, they're gonna go for that, and they are. So, again, it's just this question of, of human taste being just very easy to imitate not, not perfectly, but enough to fool us. And as a result, the choices we make, I think are very easy to sort of manipulate in this fundamental way. And that's because it's all just a matter of finding and predicting our patterns. So getting back to this, this generationship idea, right? 137,000 generations stuck on, 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 <laughs> on this planet um, or in the ship. If you think across generations, here is the sort of the problem that I, I think about or worry about is that you're gonna have this first pass in which we sample human taste and human activity and the loans we make and the jobs we offer and the sentences we hand out. And out of that sampling, where the algorithm grabs, you know, these various algorithms grab the, the best examples they can and then categorize the data and then kick out a bunch of options, we're gonna then choose from those smaller curated options and then live out a life you know, using those options, and then we're gonna generate a smaller data set that then, out of, uh, that then the algorithm will analyze again and then say, oh, well, out of this smaller group, they liked this little chunk of it. And then we're gonna choose again. And for me, that leads, I worry, to a sort of a collapsing cycle of decreasing choice. You know, for some people, they think of, uh, you know, AI is sort of facilitating this kind of endless universe of choice and it's gonna free us from our biases and we're gonna be you know, freed of the tedium of work. I hope that's true, but I also worry that it's gonna instead look like a spiral staircase that goes endlessly down as we restrict our choices and constrict our choices. And at the bottom, we're all wearing frickin' beige and drinking Soylent. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, like the, <laughs> that we're not making interesting, weird, random choices anymore because the choice is given to us. What's that? Yeah, it's people. The Soylent is people, that's right. So that for me is the loop. And you know, now let's just talk for a second about how we might break the loop. I have no idea how I'm doing on time. Am I, am I anywhere? Am I good? Okay. Um, so when I think, and I'm sorry, I have to take a sip of water here. So when I think about the sort of the, you know, I've been looking for parallel domains. 
because I, I find so much of the, of the scholarship and, and research into this, into both sort of human behavior, which I'm doing a lot of study of, and I have a big PBS series coming out about that, and then the technology that governs that behavior, you know, I don't find that those groups talk to each other very often, certainly not outside of fabulous programs like CASBIS. There are a few places where that's increasingly happening, but it's not as much as I would like. And so it's very hard to find places where people have really tried to put these questions together. And it's even harder to find places where then they've come up with policies that could somehow govern the way that other technologies and other innovations have, have guided our choices in ways that we maybe didn't intend or didn't like. But one realm that's pretty obvious is sort of the low-hanging fruit of my business is addiction. We know now that it's not cool to just turn loose the most addictive possible stuff onto a population and just let them sell it to each other and do it whenever they want. And that's why we as a society have decided, okay, there are certain drugs, there's heroin and cocaine and the rest of it, that you, you cannot let be legal because it just changes humanity. And in fact, essentially, when you talk to, I was talking to people uh, AI researchers who were thinking about <clears throat> ethics, and they were uh, saying that, in fact, the heroin problem is a problem they think about. If you're going to be a, uh, if you're going to build an AI that's going to sort of amplify the best qualities of someone, analyze their behavior, and then try and suggest the best choices they should make, what if that person is addicted to heroin, and every choice that they make is just driving back toward that addiction? Should the AI be trying to spot that and pull them away from it, or should it be trying to optimize their path to heroin? What would you do, right? This is one of the problems of this kind of binary line drawing kind of system. But addiction, I think, has lots of interesting, you know, and this is, by the way, is where it's gonna get real loosey-goosey, and I'm, and I'm really open to as many, as many ideas as you have, and I'm excited to talk to you about them. Another one is gambling, right? And this one I was hoping would have more instructive parallel lessons for us, um, but it turns out when you get into the regulations around gambling, they have far less to do with keeping ourselves away from ourselves and, and keeping life happy and much more to do with making sure that the state gets its cut you know, in places where it's happening. And it turns out that in fact, gambling is on the rise all across the world and all across the country. I didn't realize that slot machines are legal, I think in 41 states right now. Like, so this is actually not going the right direction in a, in a way that is too bad. I've been thinking quite a lot about some of the early, what they called the action rationalists, um, the RAND Corporation people and others who were trying to figure out a system that could govern ethical decision-making once everyone is killed at the top of the command structure. And could you somehow create a set of hard and fast rules that would govern the negotiation over nuclear weapons and, and how we use them? And what's interesting there is that the fundamental lesson was no, you can't build hard and fast rules for that. You have to bring people back to a table and talk it through. You know, it cannot be, you know, they basically sort of said, oh my God, we've almost ruined the world. And that was the whole doctor, um, I was about to say Dr. Strivago, Strangelove, thank you. The Dr. Strangelove idea, right, is that you don't want hard and fast rules. You need human consciousness to come in. I think there are interesting domains in which the, the algorithm would not spot the thing but we can all agree that it's really important and should drive policy. So a couple of these is, um, right now if you buy or make a new car for the American market, you have to include a backup camera. They're mandatory now in all new vehicles. And the reason is a very small, well, yeah, a very small number of children are killed 
by being backed over in the driveway. And the number is very small. It's like 30 to 60 a year. It's not a big number, right? The, the algorithm would never spot that in the, in the math. But the person who typically runs them over is their mom or dad, right? And so a lawmaker, policymaker, you and I can agree, that's fucking unacceptable, right? And we have to build a policy that makes that better. Right now, there's a whole debate going on about whether we should also include a system that would let you know when you've forgotten, because probably you're distracted on your phone, that your kid is in the back seat and you leave them in there and, they, and, the, and the windows are closed and it's a hot day. We've had, again, a very small number of kids die that way, but it's totally unacceptable to society. Right? Algorithms can't help us with that. We, as a society, have to agree, oh yeah, no, that's a problem worth regulating out of existence. Right? But the thing that I think is really one of the most interesting examples is something called the United States versus Carroll Towing Company. It was a case tried in 1947 in which a tugboat was told to untie a barge at the end of a long line of barges in New York Harbor. And the harbor master and the tug mate got out, untied that that barge and didn't realize that in doing so they had also untied all the other intervening barges between that and the pier. Those barges broke free, went all over the harbor, and one of them struck a vessel that was full of U.S. flour, flour owned by the U.S. government. The U.S. government then, of course, prosecutes for the loss of this flour and the, the uh, second district court, I'm not a law guy, and so I don't know these court terms well enough, but um, a, a judge named Justice Learned Hand basically realized there is no good law on the books for what happens when a thing that no one really is responsible for is set loose to do all kinds of damage. And how do we figure out how to balance out the necessity of taking better precautions for making sure that doesn't happen against the public risk of this thing, thing being let loose. And so he came up with something called the hand rule. And it's fascinating, <laughs> I think. He expressed it as an equation. He said, you have to balance PL against B. PL is probability of loss and the gravity of loss. How likely is this thing to happen and how bad will it be when it happens against B, the burden of precaution, the, the, the cost of dealing with it ahead of time. And he basically said, if the probability of loss and gravity of loss is greater than the burden of precaution, then it's on the company to take better precautions. So it's literally the cost of taking precautions versus the cost of you and I living in a world that doesn't have them available to us. And so, I think it's just a fascinating way to think about this, right? Because if you think about it this way, let's say, you know, we've, we live in a society right now where you could have a car that never killed anybody and it would cost millions of dollars, right? It'd be festooned in all sorts of, you know, explosive foams that would enwrap whoever it hid and you and I would be encased in foam and nobody would ever die on the road, right? But we could never afford that car. On the other hand, we certainly have gotten to the place where we found it totally unacceptable that we occasionally 
very occasionally, back over a child in the child's own driveway. And so we've been willing to change the costs on that, add a thousand bucks to the sticker price for that. We are weighing these things all the time in society. It turns out you can do that. And so for me, when I look at the possibility of weighing the turning loose of a decision guidance system like algorithms onto society versus the precautions that the companies who are purveying them, and sometimes it's not companies, unfortunately, but the, the you know, agencies and institutions and, and all the different people who are turning it loose, you know, if, should there be greater precautions that they have to take as compared to the cost to us of living without those precautions. And so these are just a few of them that I bump into when I talk to people. The notion of, of you know, paying taxes on how much you manipulate somebody, right? Facebook right now puts a price on the changing of a mind or the prompting of an action. Well, regulators could also, people have argued, uh, put a price on the, on, on the degree to which you're allowed to do that. There may be some way to, to you know, tax that in some way. Sharing the data, making it such that if you do open, you know, if you do analyze huge swaths of behavioral data, you gotta make it open to everybody so they can check your work and see that you're doing it ethically, those kinds of things. Funding counter-education should be in some way, you know, be preparing kids to ignore the products that we make. Uh, and dual use designation, right? If you're an anthrax researcher on the academic level, you need to go and get designated, uh, basically licensed to do that research uh, because it has dual uses. It can be used for very good things and for very bad things. So all of that, right, could be the burden on people who want to use this stuff as compared to the burden on us of living without it. And those burdens are pretty straightforward, right? Uh, you know, addiction, the death of choice, which we've talked about here, the death of truth we're seeing with deepfake videos and the rest of it, everybody wearing frickin' beige, right? These are problems that could be unleashed on society if we sort of aren't careful. And so we are, I think, right now at a very primitive stage of weighing these things against one another. Just returning to, to United States versus Carol, I just spent uh, a long time going down the rabbit hole of maritime regulations on barges, the tying up of barges. You know how freaking complicated it is to tie up a barge right now? Like the rules you gotta follow to do that? There's a whole world of stuff you gotta do. There's a vessel security officer who needs to be registered in all these crazy ways in order to be allowed to be the person who's even the bargee who's allowed to be on the boat. If you're gonna spend the night on the barge, forget it, there's a whole other certification for that. You know, it goes on and on. Turns out, we learn from this stuff. We learn from it, we get better at it, we make policies that can, that can you know, change this stuff, make us safer. Um, I think that, that there are all kinds of examples that we can be drawing on as we build these systems to make the kind of world that we wanna live in so when we're stuck in these frickin' tin cans together, you know, we make choices now that we won't regret you know, in a generation, two generations, or 2,000 generations. So, thank you very much, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and I'm gonna start with a few questions that are kind of in the devil's advocate space, because I, I know you've thought about some of these things and I know some of our audience has, and so yeah. we're gonna, um, I wanna talk about that. And I think, you know, one of them is one that we talked about a little bit before this talk, and um, I'm always reminded of, you know, when uh, the, the printing press came out and books were readily available and yeah. people said, 
these things that people are holding in their hands in cafes would be the undoing of, of social structure because no one's ever going to have a good conversation again. Um, or when my generation or my parents' generation had rock and roll or yeah. my generation had video games or whatever it is. And so now it's, you know, it's handheld screens. Um, why is this different? Maybe, you know, do we think that our next generation may just totally ignore us and we'll, we'll be the transition generation that has to deal with the stupid part? And yeah. You know, so I, 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 I think that's a very, it's a great question. You know, for me, and I also realize the total ridiculousness of the fact that I work in television, right? And I'm here critiquing this whole, you know, newfangled uh, technology. But I will say that all the way up through television, the technology has been slow enough, I mean, books certainly, right? Slow enough that they weren't, what, what they certainly weren't doing was mutating in response to your preferences without you having any idea that it's happening, right? And there's a whole, I mentioned it briefly, there's a whole other side to my life where I talk to behavioral researchers, um, you know, heuristics people. I have this documentary coming out next year on PBS called Hacking Your Mind that's all about the ways in which we are increasingly discovering the sort of user's manual for our brains and putting it to all sorts of nefarious manipulative purposes that we can't see. We can't feel them when they happen. And to me, absolutely, there are, right, I mean, there are books that are deeply manipulative, right, and are, and are difficult in that way, but they are not, but they're being right, written in, at such a pace that I feel like society ha had, or at least developed, the tools to deal with that and talk that stuff through, right? Uh, this stuff moves so fast and learns you so quick uh, in ways that you certainly cannot spot that I think it's a new category of problem, and I don't, I, so, so that's how I so draw the, that. So the kind of granularity and the adaptivity is fundamentally new, which I, I think I that's right. Agree. Plus, I think it's also important to understand that, right, every other great invention, uh, huge world-changing invention that we've had up until now, whether it's, you know, nuclear weapons, even the internet, right, started in the public sphere. That started and got going in either academic work or in the government. The way that algorithms are deployed right now, it's almost entirely in the private sector in ways that in the old days, you know, a journalist like me could walk up to and learn something about through more open public channels. Right now, you know, you guys, finding somebody within a, a company that wants to talk to me openly about what they're doing, really hard, really hard, unprecedentedly hard. And so, and if any of you work in one of those companies, I hope you know that I can keep <laughs> secrets very well and I'm fun to hang out with. Um, but I would just say that's another factor. There is, a, there is an economic structure to the way this stuff is being developed right now that, I, that also worries me in that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, strangely, one of the only public ways you can find out how some of these algorithms work is by trying to buy ad space. Um, and I know that's just exactly right. even for us at Long Now, the, 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 level, the, the level that we can turn the creepy dial yes. is higher than I am anywhere near comfortable of doing. That's right. Um, and I'd way rather target incorrectly than, than target That's in right. ways that are being offered to us, um, right. which is pretty stunning. Right, um, and there is a whole economy built on the idea yeah. that you can get into someone's head, you can predict based on, on what they've liked, you know, what they're gonna do next, and it's, and, it's, and it's in ways now that human beings could never have done before. You could look at a demographic and say, you know, the, the categories that a Facebook kicks out to the human eye look totally random but make perfect sense when the algorithms are parsing the data. And that for me is, yeah, it's a, it's a, that's a new world in terms of manipulative power. Right. And 
I mean, the other question I have is, you know, if, if, um, if we're so predictable, uh, why are you worried if we're taken out of the loop? Mm. Um, so what is, yep. what is the special people sauce? Um, you know, what, the, yeah. your, the equation that you talk about, for, for instance, doesn't add up in terms of backup cameras. Mm. But we have, as you point out, we have emotionally decided to add the backup cameras. They cost more yeah. than the lawsuits probably did. But yep. we have decided that we're going to do that, just like we did with seatbelts and That's right. safety glass and pretty much every other innovation in, in automobile yeah, safety, so right? There are these fabulous um, researchers uh, who sort of descended from uh, one of the best known of the CASBIS fellows, uh, Daniel Kahneman, right, who, who worked with Amos Tversky to sort of pioneer this whole idea of heuristics and how we make decisions. A lot of their graduate students and, and contemporaries went on to do all kinds of fast, fascinating work. And there's a guy named Paul Slovic who created a whole world of learnings around how we make decisions with our guts, with our, with our emotions in this way that is far more efficient than actually sitting and calculating out the answer to a thing. And he has all kinds of fascinating ways of showing you how that's true and showing how it's actually, it's not bad. It's a good thing. It's actually been quite useful. And there are um, amazing researchers, um, there's a, a this fabulous couple called Patty and Penn, who I, who I was introduced to while I was at Casbis, and, and they look at like the impossibility of squaring um, even the, the, you know, the top three things listed in the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not compatible goals, and you can't do them as a ranked choice list. Like It doesn't work. There are mathematicians who break this stuff out. So it turns out there's a squishier way that human beings make decisions that are agreed upon by all of us than something as simple as the cost of a thing, the monetary cost of a thing, or the resource cost of a thing. There is, I think, a capacity for just detecting human, you know, humans have a shared sense of repugnance at the death of children and at all sorts of things that, you know, maybe we can code, maybe we can, you know, create an algorithm that can pick those out for us, but I'm not sure we want that. Like, I think that part of the sort of the, the, the very tenuous social fabric that allows us to drive on a highway for miles and miles and not cross the line and kill the, the woman in the next lane, you know, it's because there's this sort of agreement among us all that we all, you know, in a way that we can't even describe, are making decisions with our emotions that line up with one another. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I bring the, that hand rule out as a way of thinking about you know, the, the cost of deploying this technology across society. But I think that in doing that P and L, the probability of loss and gravity of loss, you have to also work in things like horror, you know, and not just money. Well, I think the other thing that happens when, you know, obviously when backup cameras get universalized, you know, now you can buy a $50 backup camera. Um, and, you know, there, there's something that you actually create the market by making right. the emotional choice. Um, and I think that's important. And I think the other factor that is kind of the, the real question that we wrestle with with this is that, you know, the famous trolley problem, which is, you know, now in self-driving cars of, you know, if a self-driving car has to choose between killing the toddler on the side of the street or killing its own passenger, which right. every self-driving car will at some point, well, not every, at right. some point, right. many self-driving right. cars will have to make this decision. What do you, how do you decide those ethics? Yeah, that's right. And so what humans are actually bad at that momentary ethic decision, um, or they're, they're highly yeah. random at least. Right. Not, not so, only are we bad at it, our whole society is geared toward just dissecting it later. Right. 
Like the whole point of the court system is not to say, um, you know, is, is to say, well, what, what should he have done in this case and who is more at fault than something else? What we're gonna be talking about when that situation comes up is actually subpoenaing the internal records of the company that say we decided ahead of time that kids are more valuable than people or this is more valuable than that. And it may be that we have some sophisticated, mature way of doing that math. You know, I'm not sure, but, but it, I, think, I think we forget that, our, that again, this very fragile structure we've built for ourselves is based on these assumptions that, that we just forget about until we break them. You know, and in that case, the trolley problem totally breaks it because we don't think about that ahead of time. We only do that in retrospect in court. Right, but I mean, you would think that maybe if we, let's say, if we open source the trolley problem, right, right, um, that if if we decide as a public that the um, that the toddler, you know, that we've recognized because it slobbers more than the other people, <laughs> right, it's size, um, yeah, size, size versus oh, slobber, um, is, figures dark. out that the toddler really dark. Um, that now um, that now we have decided that he or she is worth more than the the 95 year old driver who is driving that car, right. um, based on you know all kinds of ways you could decide that. Um, you maybe, could imagine yeah. that maybe that that's a, that that society would be more accepting of that algorithm than they would be of the yeah, after-the-fact equation? Maybe, I mean, but, but what I think about in terms of thinking about this loop, right, is that at the top of the loop, maybe we get to individually choose, right? You're given the car and you say, well, I, I'm, I've decided that this is more the way I, I want it to make decisions or that's more the way I want it to make decisions, right? At the bottom of that loop, no one gets a choice anymore. Right? And, the, and we've all codified everything such that you don't get to make choices again. Um, you've taken me way out of my depth on this one. I'm, that is a really interesting question. I, have, I don't know the answer to that question at all, but, but I, I think that, I, I wish I could bring these, this couple, Patty and Penn here, because they would just point to the impossibility of coming up to any kind of real consensus about which thing we think is less horrible and more about simply projecting the idea that there is a sort of a legitimacy to the system that made that decision, and that's as close as you ever get to really consensus, is just agreeing, well, at least it was a legitimate discussion. They have a whole, th I mean, you wanna talk about people who will destabilize your, you know, make you realize that we are all making this up as we go along. Those two have really blown my mind. But, but for me, I think that, that I, you know, this idea that we're gonna be able to agree as a society on a thing that we want an algorithm to choose each time, is not gonna work. That, that's gonna be a rough process. I think that's a sure. really rough process, that's right. Yeah. And, and, then, and will happen out of our control in a way that is not good, that's my view. I mean, certainly the way that that's happening now. That's it's right. It's not happening in an open source way. No. By, but actually, I think, um, and so we're gonna uh, start opening up to questions and we have a mic uh, out there already, so uh, I'll just do one last one, which is that yeah. I thought it was interesting that you opened up with, a, with an example of a company that's doing something that at least some chunk of our society has agreed as a good use yes. of this technology. Yes. And you know, we assume that 81% is better than the percent before they had of right. arguments or something. Yep. Um, and so have you come across other good examples? Yeah, so other examples of that, I mean, there's a lot of them, right? So one of them, um, there's a, a very interesting company called Epic, uh, which is, a, they do uh, electronic health records. They're the number one provider of, of electronic health records around the country. And they built for a, a, a um, hospital chain in mm. Louisiana called Oxner Health, a system for ranking which patients a cardiologist should see on her rounds 
um, based on the probability that something bad will happen to that patient in the next period of time. So they take all this patient data from past cardiology patients and they say, okay, uh, literally she would get, the, the physician would get a text to her phone that says, patient X in room five has an 80% chance of flatlining in the, less, in the next two hours, see him first, right? So I was talking to them, to Epic and to Oxner about it, and they say, first of all, it's a freaking miracle. It's amazing. It totally improves outcomes by this crazy amount. 40% fewer uh, codes, they call it, um, than before. 40% fewer people wind up dying because they're getting out in front of stuff based on the algorithmic probabilities of this stuff. Fantastic, amazing. So I then was reminded of, a, of something called prospect theory. And any, behavior nerds here know what that is. It's basically this notion that sort of fundamentally collapses down to this idea that human beings are terrible at statistics and probabilities. If you give, a, if you give us percentages, we collapse them toward much easier percentages that we know how to deal with. And they basically figured out that, that human beings can really only do five percentages. We can do 0%, 100%, 99%, 1%, and 50-50. There is no 62% of a thing. You know, your brain goes, that's 50-50. You know, or if it's 80%, you go, oh, that's 99, right? And it helps to explain in part why we fall for things like travel insurance, because we're allergic, it turns out, to any kind of uncertainty. So we'll do anything to move 99% to 100%, because we freaking hate 99%. So anyway, there's this human frailty in percentages. So I asked the guys at Oxner and at Epic, well, how did you pick the percentages? You know, do you just deliver the rawest percentage? Do you round to a number? What do you do? And they were like, oh, you know, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. You know, we found that it's a real issue. When you give people too high of a percentage, they kind of overreact. But if it's too low of a percentage, they react pretty slowly. And so we had to really fine tune how we delivered percentages. I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? And then they said, we also, uh, I asked, how many times has a physician asked you how it came to the conclusion it did? Have the physicians ever asked, why this patient? And they said, one guy did once, and that was it. One of all of these MDs, one of them had said, how does it arrive at this conclusion? They were so thrilled to be done with, the, to be able to wash their hands of the process of choosing who's next. They were happy to let a computer tell them to do it. Right? So for me, 40% better, fantastic, fantastic. Doctors that don't question what they're given anymore, if the computer says yes, we're back in the David Dow United 3411 situation, right? So that, that release of the decision is actually an interesting carrot for a lot of people. And it is a wonderful thing, right? And I mean, you know, we all want to be, we all want to give up certain mental tasks, but at what cost in the long term? That's the, that's right. the I mean, question. when faced with deciding on a restaurant in San Francisco, you can imagine. Maybe that's okay. How that's many right. relationships could be saved? It's funny, and, yes. and yet, that's right, how many relationships could be saved? And yet there was, a, there was a writer for The New Yorker named A.J. Liebling who, who uh, blamed guidebooks on the, blamed the death of cuisine on guidebooks because it's, he said it made it possible for uh, restaurants to stay open that never got re uh, repeat customers because as long as they had a good review, they only had to be pretty good. Whereas if it was the neighborhood place and you came back every night, you'd know in a second that they were falling apart and you'd say, hey, monsieur, you're doing a bad job here. And so he, he blamed the death of cuisine in like 1930 or something on the Michelin guides, right? So this thing of ordering choice for us 
does it change the choices in a way that, that we don't perhaps want? Right. Well, anybody who works in the hospitality industry will have their stories about Yelp to yeah, yeah, certainly exactly, tell exactly. you that. But I think, exactly. you know, if you make the right version of that, then you could probably then know which people are about to get divorced or not. Yeah, and let's, uh, yeah, totally. And, and then totally. That you could feed it to the other totally. companies. And let's be clear, I, I travel for a living and I use Yelp like crazy. Like I'm a, I am a, I am devoted to, to the use of that thing. I, to, I totally, uh, yeah, so I get it. It's good. It's good in many ways, but what's wrong? It's, it's horrible also as a, yeah. somebody who runs a right, right. hospitality That's industry. Right. Um, yes, um, so, sorry, we have a question over here. Andrew. Hello. Oh. Um, there are many examples before the rise of AI of algorithms going seriously wrong. Like you think of something like redlining, where you know an algorithm decided who got who got the loans, and it led to like generations of poverty that we're still struggling with today. Right now that we're finally having a conversation about this, do you think there's a possible future where we can actually just build our ethics? into the algorithms and just make a choice of society and just say like, well, no, we're not gonna decide based on what all the, basically the training data that already exists, but right. basically put prescriptive instructions into the algorithms and sort of shift them to not just reflect yeah. the reality that has already been here that's so imperfect, but to create the reality that we want. So I was talking to a company that was doing exactly what you're describing. They were giving loans out and they were trying specifically to avoid redlining um, right, which is the practice of, of designating certain neighborhoods uh, and you know, basically making it such that black people could not, or communities of color could not live in certain places. Um, they were trying to do away with that. They were trying to get the, on the right side of history, and they did it by, or they thought they were doing it by, removing the traditional data that one would use to redline. So they, they pulled out things like, where do you live? which was a traditional way, zip codes was a, a, a way of redlining uh, back in the day. They removed everything that they could think of, um, names, all kinds of stuff that they, that they thought would uh, perhaps um, uh, reflect and pull in the racism of the system because they wanted to get on the right side of history. At the end of the first year of doing that, they looked at their statistics um, and because they were preparing to, to um, present them to Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, agency, help me out, consumer banking fraud protection. Thank you, thank you, whatever it is. Uh, and they found, looking at the data, that in fact the loans they had made were more racist than ones made using the traditional racist data, right? And they realized something that I think you, you are also realizing by, by your question, right, and that everybody I, I hope is, I, I'm encouraged on some level by this, that it's not about n making the data as neutral as possible. It is, in fact, perhaps about putting your thumb on the scale in some places and trying to right historical wrongs. Maybe there is some sort of putting it in, in the same way that we decide against the math that we do need backup cameras on all our cars, right? So, so maybe, maybe that is the thing. Of course, then you need to convince the country, or at least in the moment we're in right now, the leadership of a company, that it is important to right the historical wrongs of redlining and that there is institutional racism in the country that is creating tremendous structural imbalances. You know, then you get into a whole other sort of question of it. But yes, I do like the idea of that. I am, I, I would be happier with that if that wasn't happening inside of companies that 
don't talk to anyone outside of the company about what they're doing. Uh, because as much as I am pleased personally to see, you know, the, that social justice is cool now, I'd like to remind everyone that there have been vast periods of history where it is not cool to be woke, you know, like there were, and, there, and we could just as easily go back that way, right? The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice, is that famous saying? Well, I would like to point out that, you know, lots of people point out to me when you talk to behavioral scientists, they're such a bummer to hang out with because they say things like, we don't actually know how long the arc of history is because we've only been in it for this long and we have no idea which way it bends, right? So for me, I like, you know, I'm glad that people feel a moral responsibility to make good choices within companies, and I often get that line from people that I talk to within those companies, but I don't think that's enough to build something as important as where people get to live on. Uh, so that's, that's my concern about it. So yes, I hope we continue to push things in the right direction. I'd like some structural things to change in the process. We have the mic in the back of the room. Yeah. Jacob, thank you so much for that talk. It was fantastic. Thank you. I especially appreciated all of the tension that got built over the course of the talk as we started to realize what algorithms were doing to our life as it would kind of replace our own decision-making structure. But I couldn't help but notice at the end, we all kind of landed on another representational algorithm with the hand rule. And we all kind yeah. of breathed a sigh of relief and the tension was released and we thought, oh, okay, cool, now we can actually make this decision a little bit easier. Right. But I wonder if in researching the Hacking Your Mind series, have you run into any philosophers or psychologists or even like a theologian who's, who've advocated that the anxiety of decision-making is actually more of a feature and not a bug and that we shouldn't perhaps try to solve it and get rid of it? Yes, so thank you for that. That is such a thoughtful question. I, I wish you had been with me yesterday when I showed this to my coworkers and they said, here's how you can make it better. Uh, <laughs> you, would, you would have been very helpful then. Um, you know, so yes. So I have a whole other talk that I, maybe someday I can come here and, and, and give about Right, the, the Kahneman idea of system one and system two, which he built out of a whole body of scholarship that had come before him. And it, it had to do with this fast thinking brain and this slow thinking brain. You know his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which sort of tries to articulate this, but, but basically the notion that there is a very ancient decision-making system that we share with all of our primate cousins still to this day, and researchers have shown this, and I in fact got to go and watch monkeys do this uh, on this cool island in Puerto Rico. Um, and it turns out that for more than 30 million years, at least 30 million years, because that's where we intersect with primates, uh, we have had this system that is all about instinctive decision-making, it's emotions like we were talking about, it is external stimulus making your decision for you, and what Kahneman, Tversky, and so many other people pointed out is that that system, that ancient decision-making system is kind of mismatched with the modern world because when you are currently, you know, when you walk into an environment, the stimulus of that environment makes your decision for you. So for me as a non-drinker, right, when I walk into a bar, my whole business is like, oh, you, now's the time to start drinking, right? Because that's the decision-making system that, it, that, that I inherited. Then there is another decision-making system, the slow-thinking system, that's really only about you know, maybe 140,000 years old, maybe 70,000 years old, they don't really know, but it's a very new, very glitchy system that is where our creativity comes from and our ability to reason and the ability to sit still here and, you know, not take all my clothes off and run around, you know, like all of the higher functioning of, of our bodies and of our minds is a very recently evolved system. And what so many of these folks in, in talking to them for Hacking Your Mind say is, 
you really need them both. Like we would be exhausted if we had to use our higher reasoning for everything. And yet, if we use only the fast thinking brain, system one, then you get, I mean, they, they, there are these terrifying experiments that, that they showed us where, you know, you flash, um, you flash uh, pictures of faces past people too fast for them to identify any single face. And then afterwards, um, and in doing so, they have to choose, I'm going to screw up the description of this, but they have to choose which one is, is uh, more likable of the two. And, um, they, and, and then something about which one is more symmetrical too, I can't remember what it is, but anyway, you're very quickly making decisions comparing faces. And at the end of it, they reveal that those aren't just random snapshots of people, they're actually candidates for state office over the past 10 years. And it turns out that all the ones you chose are the ones that won. Right? Because it's, it turns out that our system one, our fast thinking brain, is going into the booth, right, and casting votes in this like, you know, kind of way, this sort of ancient primate way. And so we need the slower, harder, you know, more difficult thinking style in order to make good decisions for this totally invented reality we have built for ourselves where we wear shoes and drink coffee and hang out, right? So. So what do we, you know, how, how do we balance those two things out? I'm not sure, but I will say, no one's making money off the slow thinking. Everyone's making money off the fast thinking. And so every business, every political campaign, every manipulative, you know, activity out there is aiming at your primate brain and trying to get you with it. And so yes, we have to keep the slow thinking brain sacred. And maybe there's a way through algorithms, right? Maybe there's a way, there, maybe there's a Yelp of the future that accesses your, your slow thinking brain. There's a, a fabulous uh, guy connected to Casbis named Tino Cuellar, who's a federal judge. He talks about um, a system, uh, an idea that he calls weak perfection, which is only a big deal in, in um, uh, law circles, where they basically, the, the system is designed to make it a total pain in the ass to do certain things. And one of them is enter a plea. If you're gonna make a choice about whether you're pleading guilty or innocent, you, you, you gotta go like through five different steps and you gotta show up in person, it's like a total pain. And people have over the years always said, well, we gotta make that easier, gotta make it easier. Well, no, they say, no, we don't, because you're never getting to make that choice again. And when you do make it, it's, make, it's having an incredibly huge impact on your life. So we have to keep your slow thinking brain involved to make this correct. So, so I think there are many, many examples in which we know you gotta defend, like you say, the hard, you know, the, the hard work of making difficult choices. And my worry is that there are so many billions of dollars being spent to take that initiative away from you. We got room for one more. Actually, this, back. Is, this is almost a follow-up. Um, I was struck by your example of the, the guy being pulled off the, tr the plane and not having kind of ability to engage in that. And it reminded me of something that Stuart Brand said on, the, on our summit a few years ago about long-term thinking. It's one of the more, th I'm gonna paraphrase it badly and wrong probably, but one of the things he said, more, the more we think about long-term thinking, the more it turns out it's not actually the solutions or the particular technologies that are important, but it's all these other human qualities mm. that we really need to develop. And so what makes me worry in the picture you're presenting is it's, we're, we're still talking all about decisions. <laughs> and making decisions, but you know, and is that accelerating the quashing of all the development or attention to other human qualities that sort of are important in the unknowns that come forward? So, my question is, and sort of follow up to what you were just talking about, 
I mean, what are the human qualities that you now would worry are either being lost or should be promoted in, the, in, you know, in sort of the realm of this? What are the first things to go? I mean, beyond just the, you know, we need time for our rational minds, but if we were more specific about what are the, what are the real things that yeah. we could lose or that we could emphasize? Yeah. God, that question makes me so tired. I, I want, I want to know. No, we have a bar full of drinks for you. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank, thank you, System One. Uh, thank you, Vesting Brain. Um, you know, I, I'm a great. I mean, I, I've, I know I'm a total downer to listen to, but I, I actually am incredibly optimistic and pleased with human history. Um, and when my wife and I was here tonight, you know first got together, we were trying to reconcile the difference in our pasts where we, um, we, we, you know, she'd grown up in the church and I'd grown up in a sort of a, a household that very actively rejected the notion of the church. And yet I, I, through her, you know, got to sort of see the power of human beings being connected to one another through something like the church. And, you know, we lived in a community, for instance, where all of these norms had obviously come out of this shared experience such that, for instance, it was not okay not to say good morning and good afternoon to everybody. You know, I came, I came from a society where everybody kind of walks by each other very quietly. And, and my wife taught me like, oh no, you want to be accepted here? You got to talk to everybody. You got to say good morning and you got to say good afternoon. And she was right. When I sort of, you know, I take that as sort of the, an example of, of how through, you know, there's a, a wonderful researcher at Harvard um, named Mazarin Banaji. And she starts every talk, not every talk, but she, she for a while there, started every talk by saying, I'd like to congratulate you on being the most diverse group of people in human history to ever sit in one room and no one's gonna die today. You know, great job, right? That, that for some reason we actually, in spite of the political moment that we're living in, we have a tremendous ability for cohesion. We're great at connecting to one another, right? And, and inspiring one another and loving one another and being loyal to one another against all logic, you know? So for me, the power of human association and networking, you know, the ways in which we pass things on to one another. Man, I could go on forever, but I mean, I'll just give you this one example. There's a, a fabulous, this, this um, researcher who, who uh, looks at um, uh, people who've, who've lost their eyesight, the, the, they, are, they are consciously blind, but the mechanism of their eye is still intact, it's just severed from the brain. And, and she has shown that they can, uh, these people who have what she calls blind sight, can be shown certain stimulus, and even though they can't consciously see it, they react to it. And she had this famous case where she thought this guy couldn't see anything, she brought him into the lab, they were hanging out, and just to mess around with them because they, they weren't having any success that day, they set up a little obstacle course in front of him. The guy is blind. He shows up with a cane. He can't see. She puts him in this thing and she says, can you walk to the other end of the room? And he walks along and avoids all the obstacles. And we have footage of it in the PBS special where he goes around the obstacles. And at the end of it, everybody at the, and all these researchers gasp and are like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? And he says, do what? He has no idea. That, his, that not only was he perceiving the stuff in his way, but his body was moving around it. He has no idea that was happening. She then went on to do research on him and other people, showing that in fact, if you show them pictures of people making big smiles or you know, big frowns or looking horrified, you ask them, what do you see? And they say, I'm blind, you idiot. Uh, can't, you, you know, can't you tell I have a cane? Like I can't see anything. But it turns out that if you attach 
all sorts of sensors to their face, they can detect the micromusculature movements of their faces. When you show them a person smiling, their face starts to smile. When you show them a person screaming, they start to do that same thing. We are born to catch emotions. We have an unconscious apparatus for catching emotions from each other and passing it on to the next person. And it probably had some great evolutionary function once upon a time where the room catches fire and I make a mask of horror and then Xander makes a mask of horror and then everybody's horrified and we all get the fuck out without having to say, the room's on fire, right? But it also means we're built. We're not supposed to say the room's on fire, it's not on fire. Yeah, the room is not on fire. <laughs> but we are built to catch and transmit between each other in a way that I think is beautiful and has led to all kinds of amazing stuff. And so I wanna keep that alive. My, you know, sh my short-term worry is that we're not talking to each other. That Uber thing where you don't have to talk to the driver if you don't want to, you get to silence them. You, know, you can literally say, don't, uh, no talking on this ride. That's not good for society. You know? We're good at being together and I want more of that. Well, I want to thank you very much. I think there's probably, um, in a way, no topic more resonant too long now as to how we not only make these decisions, but I think how we are going to build the systems of making these decisions. Um, there's no way that something like climate change or no. hunger or the prison reform or whatever That's happens right. without us thinking at a scale that is beyond ourselves. And I really want to thank you for that. And you get a uh, Long Now oh, Challenge coin as one of our speakers. Thank Please, you for me. a round of applause for... Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this talk, we hope you'll subscribe to hear more. You might also like Long Now's other podcast, Seminars About Long-Term Thinking, with more than 200 more long-term thinking lectures hosted by Stuart Brand. Subscribe to both at longnow.org slash podcast or wherever you like to listen.